0: This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohn from Queen's College.
1: I'm Leslie Hankson from Georgetown University.
0: And I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. We're on the web the AnnexPodcast.com on Twitter at social Annex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Today, a completely expendable all banter episode. <laughs> Finally,
2: I've been telling you we need episodes that people can skip. Just skip this podcast and go listen to In Our Time. And then if you're really <laughs> bored at the gym, you can come back to us.
0: <laughs> yeah. We're like the we're like the poor man's in our time. Oh God, yeah. It's well, so we cool. could we
2: could all we could all try and talk like this, and then at the very end, we could have the music, and then you know you could ask us. So, is there anything that we left out? And then uh, we yeah. could have one of our questions, yeah. knock and say, uh, offers coffee or tea. So, but before we get into anything serious, by the way, uh, so there's a you know in our time has done a couple of spinoff shows, most famously um, History of the World and a Hundred Objects. And they also did uh, Shakespeare's Restless World. And they have a current one called Living with the Gods that's really good. And it's basically all about the sociology and anthropology of religion.
0: Oh, nice. Yeah.
2: So it's about, I don't know, 10 episodes out of 40. And and uh, it's it, I highly recommend it.
0: Great. Another podcast to crush us in the quality. <laughs> well, <laughs> What you
2: do is you download it, you listen to it, and then you add us to the playlist to
0: play after that it's like it's like where they're like the metropolitan opera we're more like the hee-haw of
1: uh
0: (laughs) of academic media
2: so that's actually funny like you mentioned that because like i i wanted to listen to nixon in china um a couple weeks ago and so i went on amazon prime to listen to it and the version they had was from the colorado opera and i was like Mm -hmm. okay i understand why people go to see the metropolitan opera because mm-hmm. this Colorado version was so awful. Oh,
1: was it really? Know. Yeah,
2: it was like unlistenably bad. And I've heard several different versions. I've heard the Houston version, a version in Paris, and um, and the Mets version. And they were all good, but that Colorado one was unlistenable. I'm like, okay, I understand why they sold the rights to Amazon to stream this.
0: <laughs> they're so they're all so hungry for content. I yeah. ended up watching South Park because I'm very my, far lower brow than you and uh oh, they you're, you're married
2: band. to an opera singer yeah
0: well there, there's some. it doesn't mean that i'm consuming it right well, she, yeah she, she has all the cultural capital i'm just the uh i'm just the arm arm candy, head. candy yeah yeah well when i got a i got a blu-ray of nixon and
2: uh you know my girlfriend was like you can watch that when i go out of town
0: so <laughs> <laughs> anyhow so yeah. what's going on guys what's news
1: Oh, well, you know, as always, sex, sex, and more sex, except not the consensual type.
0: Oh, mm-hmm. what are you reading?
1: What what am I reading?
0: What have you been reading? Well, what 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 do you think? What do you have in mind? This? Yeah, time? how do you? Yeah, how
2: do you know she wasn't just telling you her plans?
1: <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> yeah. um, um. No, I, I'm getting. Uh, I'm starting to get more and more concerned with what we're seeing in the in the papers, um, on the news. I mean, Louis C.K. the whole Moore mm. business. Um, you know, people coming out about sexual misconduct and, you know, in state houses around the country. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. I Is this the kind of thing where this has been going on for a really long time, and now we're at this moment where all of a sudden um, people who have been victims of sexual harassment, uh, misconduct, abuse, um an assault, um, because there seems to be a wave and a community, they feel more comfortable coming out and talking about it because um, mm-hmm. they think with this bigger wave, they'll be less likely to be judged or, or what? what? What do we think is going on here?
2: So uh, just a quick tangent up front, you called it sexual harassment. And I think that's true. But one of the interesting things to me is that for decades, the main image we had of sexual harassment was hostile environment. Mm -hmm. And this current wave of things following Weinstein seems to be almost, I guess actually it started a little bit earlier than with um, Roger Ailes and Bill O'Reilly, but then it's really Uh picked up in a big way with uh, Weinstein. Um, Almost everything that we've been hearing lately is really uh, quid pro quo, sexual harassment and or sexual assault. Um, mm-hmm. the only recent allegation that was relatively ho- pro- high profile, I remember that was more or less hostile environment was the, uh, mother Jones, David Corn thing. Um, but aside from that, well, I didn't hear about that one. Well, basically it was like, you know, we'd come up and offered back rubs and like, he'd like people didn't like, like his reaction and body language when they pitched a, a news story involving gender issues or rape or something like that. Um. But there's no allegations that he was like basically fuck me if you're or you're fired kind of thing like Weinstein Mm -hmm. Um, or a lot of these other guys or or, or for that matter, no allegations that he was, you know, chasing after people who are way too young. I mean, it it doesn't fit the pattern in other respects. It's much more the stuff that you were warned about in like, you know, your online, you know, annual certification for uh, sexual harassment about uh, hostile environment, you know this person is, you know, making other people uncomfortable, but they're not demanding sexual favors. Um, And and I just thought that was interesting, right? And that, you know, the broad scheme, the the broad trend in um, concerns about inequality, um, you know, had been for a while, this idea of like, well, we've more or less handled a lot of the big stuff, but there's still a lot of um, action and stuff that's really subtle. And people feel like it's so subtle. But then it turns out that there was a lot of the really big stuff left. You yeah. know, that, mm-hmm. that it, it's yeah. not just, oh, um, you know, you, you tell jokes that make me feel uncomfortable or, or that sort of thing. There really are uh, people out there who are overtly creepy, you know, and overtly demanding. Weinstein was a
0: serial rapist. Yeah, totally. And it, like, he was just a straight up, same as the, you know any other serial rapist. Yeah,
2: yeah, of course. Um, and and, it, and it's interesting to note that there's like so many people, and like, and with the exception of like this story about um, Moore, most of these things do not go back to the seventies. Most of these stories are from you know the nineties or even more recent mm-hmm. than
1: that. I, I mean, I wouldn't say it's it's obviously problematic, but I mean, I think we spoke about this on a previous podcast. It's, I mean, this stuff, this stuff happens, right. And, Mm -hmm. and we know it happens. And I don't know the extent to which men know that this happens, but, but women know that this happens uh, not just because it happens to them um, personally, but because, you know, other women uh, thankfully, look out for you. Every once mm-hmm. in a while, mm-hmm. another guy looks out for you and says, "Hey, you know, look out for, look out for so and so." And I think, uh, and that's just, and that's just the way things have been, right? Since you know, since I was a kid to to now.
0: I I I have to say, I was totally oblivious to all of this. Like, I mean, I, you know, I think we spoke about it before and I don't want to repeat myself about how I understood it to be prevalent in the abstract, but had no appreciation of its, you know, immediate consequence. But earlier you were asking, what are the big factors that you think are, are, are driving this? Yeah. Right. Is that, and I have to, so one thing that I noticed, uh, after the election, after the presidential election, I, I found in my social media and the, the, the women of my social networks, they, got, they felt a stronger sense of urgency with sort of sexual violence issues or, you know, after the whole uh, Billy Bush, Donald Trump tape, and then he got elected. And I think uh, I I know a lot like the after the Trump election, I know that a lot of women I knew were very, very upset, as they should have been about the the Billy Bush tape and the, you know, grab them by the privates or whatever. Yeah, but even but beyond we, that,
1: we, even beyond that, I mean, it, you know, it's like the news came out that, you know, in her divorce filings, you know, Ivana Trump alleged that you know, he'd raped her repeatedly during their, their marriage. Right. And uh, I mean, even an allegation of that, I mean, it's like, isn't, is that disqualifying? I mean, I know that there's still some people in this country that think it's impossible for a husband to rape his wife. But um, I, 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 I mean, uh, I, I was flabbergasted. I was dumbfounded. And I think that that actually was a wake up call to a lot of women who actually did believe that there had been a lot of progress in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, how could this man be elected president?
0: That, that Even for me, I thought, because to my mind, uh, admitting that you grab people by the genitals is basically, yeah. I mean, they are a sexual assaulter. And that's that's a, an admission of being a, somebody who engages in sexual assault. And that that, you know, I uh, to my mind when when he was elected, I was like, okay, so my daughters are going to go to school with the picture of some uh, sexual predator hanging in front of the room.
2: Yeah.
0: And it was, you know, and I think uh, and I know a lot of women just reacted very strongly to that. You know, you know, uh, earlier Gabriel and I were talking, though, about this. uh, Well, wait, Leslie, were you going to follow up? I heard you say
1: something. No, no, no. No, I'm good. I'm good.
0: Because we were talking, there was uh, 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 a recent article in The Atlantic by Caitlin Flanagan, which uh, was asking, well, you know, in the midst of all these changes, what are we going to do about Bill Clinton? Yeah. Oh,
1: yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, that's what I was noticing. Like, Leslie's, like, you know, this guy was accused of rape and he was elected president. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I was thinking, like, not for the first time.
1: No, for no, for sure. Right. I mean, definitely for sure. And so is this like a, you know, tit for tat thing? They're like, you guys had your sexual predator. We're going to have ours.
0: In a world where partisan affiliation is sort of the central variable, maybe. But like, you know, what was interesting with this Caitlin Flanagan article was she talks about Gloria Steinem Mm -hmm. coming out and slut-shaming the uh, the women who were accusing Bill Clinton. Yeah. Was
2: it Steinem or somebody else who said... I, I remember there was some columnist or, you know, opinionator-type person who basically said that <clears throat> uh, for preserving abortion rights, uh, Clinton deserved to be filleted by every woman in America. Yeah,
0: no, I don't okay. remember that. That, that was but...
2: contemporaneous. That was in, like, 1998. Somebody said that. And it was basically this idea of, like... You know, if you agree with us on policy, then you can get away with whatever you want personally. And it was making explicit in right. very much the same way that you're hearing
0: people talk about Roy Moore. You know, think of it like uh, Monica Lewinsky. You know, I she has a great TED talk, by the way, Monica Lewinsky, mm-hmm. about uh, being shamed on the Internet. And she really is one of the. Well, she was the, I mean, the
2: earliest person.
0: Yeah, she's like, uh, you know, a candidate for patient zero of yeah. this type of behavior. Oh, you know what's funny but is there like- was no
2: patient zero in what? HIV. Uh, there, there's a oh. Yeah, the, that whole thing that started with the band played on and then that Gladwell picked up. It's all bullshit. Huh. Um, that guy was originally right, but- called patient. Oh, you want to save that?
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think, yeah, let's save that okay, one. Anyway, that's cool. yeah, put a pin in it. But basically patient zero never
1: happened. Huh.
0: It's for the, for the demography episode. Uh,
1: yeah, but I mean, just even before Monica Lewinsky, <laughs> you know, before Monica Lewinsky, there were other allegations about Clinton during, you know, during his first run for for the presidency, and even before that, you know, we had Anita mm-hmm. Hill. Like I remember, yeah. I remember watching this, uh, watching yeah. those hearings. <clears throat> And thinking to myself, oh, my God, like, oh, my God, like, what is mm-hmm. wrong with these men in this mm-hmm. room questioning this woman?
0: Right. Well, I'm, I am so it's a lot. I mean, I'm sure that's probably uh, that's probably one of the earliest incidences of our given our age, our level of political awareness. And I'm sure there's tons of earlier episodes that we well, sort of weren't... It, is, done it,
2: done. is it given our age or is it given changing norms, right? So that kind of thing absolutely happened earlier. So um, JFK had a teenage mistress who he would have visit him in the White House pool and tell her to give blowjobs to his friends. But that didn't come out until decades later because there was a norm of the press covering up for the president. Uh, how you, who, I didn't how, how know about see, that. Broke
0: that story? Where'd you hear about
2: that? In her memoirs.
0: Oh, well, there. Oh, they're, so here's another interesting thing uh, about what I've been reading on all of these sexual, uh, you know, all these uh, sexual misconduct allegations. The other big thing is that people are now believing accusations. Yeah. Like they are giving victims the benefit of the doubt. Instead of, uh, you know, usually the uh, the accuser is someone who maybe audiences know better, the public knows better, and maybe we have a disposition to give benefit of the doubt to those who we know or feel we know and like.
2: Well, it, it's, and, I, and, there were a couple of people who pointed out on Twitter that um, if two months ago, Rose McGowan had said that ex-Massad agents were spying on her, she would have been sent to a mental hospital. <laughs> but,
0: you know, it turns, it turns out to be true. These are these are crazy times we live in. But I mean, I'm very pleased with with uh, this Me Too and this whole awakening, because I remember you asking when the Weinstein story was breaking fresh, Leslie, is this going to be a watershed? Uh I think it might end up being. Is it the final one? No, No. definitely not. Mm But is is this a, is this a moment where it feels like things are breaking? It feels a lot like uh, when gay marriage started breaking mm-hmm. to me.
2: It's like a like a tipping. Just
0: every yeah, like a a, a long held sort of uh, set of norms are are being broken, and uh, we're collectively we're collectively becoming aware of problems in our society and developing the resolve to to act on you know act against them and i think it's a wonderful trend i think it's yeah i don't
1: know i don't know i'm waiting for the backlash right you know you way you know there's a wave and then there's a backlash and i and i am i i i think a backlash is going to come and i'm afraid um you know some backlashes are stronger than others right um Mm -hmm. i'm hoping that this backlash that comes isn't going to be fierce
0: It's it's hard for me to say because I I, I mean, I'd imagine that a very unpopular president and his associated social movement would be at the vanguard of that backlash. And I feel like it's just not a not a strong team behind that movement. One area where it might get uh, one area that causes me pause is uh, in something that Gabriel said about the David Korn story, where people are talking about interpretations of body language uh-huh. when certain stories are pitched, and if this presses into that, where people are being forced to or be are or being publicly shamed for other people's impressions of their nonverbal language, then it might get into a a problematic area. Oh
1: no, for sure. And that's I think that that's actually where people leading the backlash, that's where they're going to sink their teeth in, right? They're going to sink mm-hmm. their teeth into into those kinds of accounts right and though and by sinking their teeth into those kinds of accounts then all of the bigger issues then just get grouped in with that right and then all of a sudden it's like you know you know it's kind of like um you know i remember when uh ford i can't remember his first name he's a law professor at stanford i want to say wrote that book the race card um And, you know, and he and that's part of what he says. He's like, you know, there is a backlash or there are consequences when people play the race card, which is when people piggybacking on real serious instances of racial discrimination, prejudice and racism. Right. They piggyback on that. Right. In order to make claims of of of. Of themselves being wronged, right? Uh, claims that they are right. aggrieved. and that what ends up happening then is people who actually don't want to give credence to any um, a- any uh, reports of racism or prejudice. Um, they say, "You see, so it's not really a mm-hmm. thing." And I'm I'm actually I'm actually afraid that that's what we're going to see.
2: So the the other way to put that is that you get a backlash when you have overreach where you have, you know, some type of legitimate complaint mm-hmm. and then some people attach marginal cases to that complaint overreach with them. Mm-hmm. And, um, <clears throat> and then there's kind of pushback against that. So like, and you could think of tons of examples. So like, um, you know, there yeah. were a lot of communists in the United States in the second, in the, uh, in the popular front era, most of them quit after the Hitler Stalin pact, but there were a lot of communists in the, uh, in the U.S. in the popular front era and so the second Red Scare was reacting to something although it was a problem that was mostly solved by then just because most communists resigned after the Hitler-Stalin pact but where you had the backlash with anti-anti communism was after McCarthy accused the army of being infested with communists so basically huh. he overreached right and it gave you know a, a cause that had some legitimate complaints that made it look ridiculous um, now And so another way to put this is, why do you have people overreaching? Um, And I'm reminded of this post a couple of years ago on, um, it's a pseudonymous blog by a psychiatrist called uh, Slate Star Codex. And he had this great post called uh, The Toxoplasmosis of Rage. And he was Uh. making this argument that one reason you see overreach is because people see it as disloyal to question marginal cases. So if there's a case of some sociologist being attacked and I were to say, well, this guy's kind of an asshole or a crank or whatever, you know, basically say like, this is not where we Mm want to pick our battles here. Um, Other people might say, oh, don't you care about sociology? Or, oh, don't you care about academic freedom or whatever? And in in some senses, it can be kind of a costly signal of group loyalty to embrace the dubious cases. And so he mm-hmm. uses the case of why did Black Lives Matter organize around Ferguson instead of around Eric Garner, where mm-hmm. the facts were much right. clearer in the case of uh, Eric Garner, that there was um, excessive police uh, brutality. Um Oh, it's plain yeah, as whereas in now, Ferguson, it's, it's somewhat ambiguous, right? There's conflicting witnesses and things like that. And then eventually uh, they got some security mm-hmm. footage showing that he had committed crimes earlier that day. And so it made it more plausible that he had charged the cop, uh, not ironclad, but certainly the Justice Department wasn't able to um, conclude with BLM's narrative. And he was pointing out that it's not like Garner happened after Ferguson. So it's like, OK, they got the dubious case and only later did the clear cut case present itself. Garner actually happened first and and it's not even like Ferguson was newsworthy and then BLM had to comment on it. Ferguson was only newsworthy because BLM made it an issue, right? Uh, So you you have this case where actually these two cases right where the movement is choosing the dubious case and it seems to be like a logic of you don't want to admit that there are some cases that your uh, movement can push that are a little bit iffy and you're better off picking your battles um,
0: yeah well, sometimes also the your organizational energy is mm-hmm. coming from one region. like I know that the the community in St. Louis was very highly mobilized, and it was like an organizational sort of opportunity to harness that yeah, and energy. that and that could be wow, displaced from
2: related were- issues, like as the Justice department also pointed, I mean, the Justice Department's report basically said it was probably a justified shooting. But the, um, the the cops were acting as tax collectors, shaking people down for bullshit fines.
1: Although you know, I I mean, I like I'm gonna I, like I'm gonna step in a little bit uh-huh. here and and and, and <laughs> thinking about you know like what you're calling a dubious case, and hmm. I would think actually that um, I, you know I I think that. Uh, I think that Ferguson actually begs the question, what is a justifiable shooting? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. if you think about it, you know, you know, whatever. I mean, he engaged in some bad acts earlier. Like he stole some cigarillos. Sure. Right. And, you know, and, 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 e- and even if he did rush the cop, did he mm-hmm. rush the cop? With a
0: weapon? Yeah, I think he he reached. No, he reached in to grab the gun. I think, or what is what they that was the claim, and I think the ballistics evidence was consistent with him reaching in the car.
1: Yeah. So I mean, I don't, I don't know. Well,
0: well listen, I, I I
1: think there's
2: two sep- there's two separate issues. One is what is true in reality, what actually yeah. describes the modal case, and the other is what's going to make it convincing. Who do you want to have as the poster boy for your movement?
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And I think part of, I mean, isn't part of BLM's like whole, like th- their whole thing is that, you know what, respectability politics shouldn't be what drives a movement. I mean, I mean, you can look at, you know, you can look at analyses of social movements, especially social movements mm. that, um, that center around marginalized people and the ones that are, have been the most effective thus far are the ones that are all about respectability politics. Oh yeah, totally. Um, that, that
2: was their position, right? Is like, basically, we don't need to do respectability politics, but they were wrong. You do need to do respectability politics, right? I mean, public opinion of cops rose after 2015. It didn't go down. And it's hard to figure out what that is, aside from a backlash to BLM.
1: Do you think that's what it is, right? I mean, I think it's partly a backlash to BLM, but I think we'd also had this kind of rising tide of, I mean, whose opinion of cops rose, right? I mean, think about that. I mean, haven't we had this rising tide of what's people are calling like white resentment or, or white aggrievement um, my
2: understanding is that the poll numbers for you know i mean these standard like gss modules on okay. you know how much you trust the government how much you trust the government how much you trust the military how much you trust organized religion whatever um that the the numbers for cops were pretty steady and then they rose in 2015 and there, there was a, a a rise in crime but people didn't know about the rise in crime until after that data was collected
1: Mm -hmm. And so my question is like that rise in support for the police, Mm -hmm. who, 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 who had rising support? Was it across the board Americans? Because I would find it really hard to believe that the vast majority of African Americans and Latinos in this country were like, yeah, thumbs up.
2: We could check the crosstabs if you want. Uh, I I wouldn't surprise me either way. Okay. You guys, I'm going to mute my mic and I'll get back to you in a minute. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, he's my god check it. you're
1: so nerdy
2: okay wait a minute wait a minute when i was when i was 18 i got a copy of the gss code book out of the, the campus library and i read the whole damn thing cover to cover
0: oh so my <laughs> oh my damn. god that's like
1: that's like when i read the dictionary
0: Wow, you guys are like, am I the coolest uh, one here today? Is that is that I actually happening? I, I think, <laughs> I
1: think so, Joe.
0: <laughs> I have to say, like, uh, for me, I know with the Jewish case, I'm always cringing when there's cries of anti-Semitism, and it's something that I very rarely want people mm-hmm. to use. Like, uh, to me, uh, call like uh, calls of anti-Semitism are like. A, a last resort, because I'm of the belief that every time you you make that call, you diminish its uh-huh. future use, and it it pains me when uh, to see uh, it used as a sort of a convenient ad hominem argument in popular politics, uh, and it's something that I I really don't like, and it's something that I think uh, is. Well, a I'll tell opinion. you, I was Just I was pissed
2: example. when um, Pollard got left out. Uh, let out like I, I, I wanted him to stay in prison. Uh,
0: yeah, I, I wish, look for me, uh, uh, black lives matter is, I always took it to mean that black lives matter. Like you can't go around killing them because their lives are important. And I always, always wondered why it, the one that broke my heart was the oh, Tamir yeah. rice. That one just bothers me so well, much. Was that the kid in the park? It just, or or the, that one the, just the, a cop responded to a man. With yes. gun calls and immediately shot the kid. Yeah. A 12 yeah. year old boy like that one was just, I, that one just did it for me, but I do know people in my community who are pro cop. And I think what's happening is they are hearing from their, their news sources that police are under attack. Like there's a distortion of what black lives matter mm-hmm. is about. And just sort of like the way Colin Kaepernick has mm-hmm. been distorted to be about hating troops and not respecting the American troops who died. Like, it's just so ridiculous. But that goes to Leslie's point. Is there anything anybody could have done? I don't think so because they're getting their information from like, like from people who, whose primary directive is to incite. Yeah. And they don't have a strong commitment to the facts anyway. So it probably doesn't even matter what would have happened or who would have said what. Because when you have like a, a strong force that's looking to incite people, what do you – well, how are you going to stop that if there's no commitment to the truth or what people have actually said?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think that's totally I think that's totally right, and I think that you know we've seen this, you know, since I would say twenty years after the Civil Rights Act. Right? Is people were like, "Yay, end of racism!" Right? And then after twenty years of you know enacting policy, like most of the time, quite weakly. Then the vast majority of the American public then said, um, okay, racism's over. Why do we still have this stuff?
2: Well, you know what's funny about that is um, Mm, if you look at a graph, I think it was also the Atlantic, there was a graph recently showing um, the partisan split in something along the lines of is how big of a problem is racism. And it it was, Mm. whether you ask Republicans or Democrats, the answer to it's a big problem like, uh-huh. like it, not in the sense like, uh, do you approve of it or not, but in the sense of you know, how much does it actually affect, um, was relatively low and steady with a relatively small but steady gap between Republicans and Democrats. And that gap has been growing substantially mm-hmm. where Republicans basically still say it's not much of a problem and if anything, say it's a little bit less of a problem than they used to. And Democrats, the number's just been skyrocketing. It went from something like 25% to something like uh, 60%. Uh, and you want to guess when that trend started?
1: Uh, after Barack Obama, was exactly.
2: Elected. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. The trend started really? right in like two thousand
0: eight. What's the explanation?
2: I don't know what the explanation is. My speculation would be. Uh, kind of like uh, frustration of rising expectations, just like in uh, Tocqueville's luncheon regime.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, it is actually very, very, very interesting. And you know, I'm sure I'm sure if they'd been taking surveys like post reconstruction, We'd, mm-hmm. see, we'd be seeing some similar trends, so I feel like. <laughs> Can you imagine I, no, doing
2: I, a survey in 1859 yeah, of like exactly, on a scale of strongly agree, strongly yeah, disagree, yeah, yeah, how much exactly, I'm but that, this.
1: But what I'm saying is, I think that there are these moments, right? There are these moments, right? So uh-huh. you have struggle, 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 right, and then you have some kind of breakthrough, right? Where like everyone's like, "Yay!" You know, good has won out. And yeah. then, after about fifteen to twenty years, people are like, "Okay, we're sick of this now, right? Like, yeah. why aren't you further ahead? It must be your fault. And, you know, and then there's whole retrenchment. And I think that we I think that we could actually see these cycles if we actually had survey data dating all the way back there. I think we'd we'd really see that.
2: Yeah, by the way, I did look up the uh, cop trust question, but unfortunately, it, so the bad news is that, unfortunately, do you trust cops is not a core question, GSS. So we don't have a launch unit. I know uh-huh. that there's uh-huh. that. It might be Pew or Gallup or something. But in the course of looking for it, I found that there was a module one year where they asked, what is the number of Keats that you trust, the number of Marias that you trust, the number of Karens that you trust,
1: uh, <laughs> the number
2: of cannons, the number of electricians, you know? So uh uh-huh.
1: I, I guess know. they just chose names out of a
2: phone book or like social security records or something and asked uh, the number of people you trust.
1: That's random. Like I, I yeah. mean, I wish they would have asked me what I wanted to have in the GSS that year. That sounds like a throwaway.
2: <laughs> well, I, I, th- I think what it is is that you know ex-ante what uh, percentage of people in a given birth cohort are named Linda. And it provides, uh, and it's kind of like an ecocentric, uh, it's a name right. register sociometric.
0: Yeah, probably somebody got an idea once, and then they've scraped together. How much does it cost to put a question on the GSS? Yeah, it I'm not sure. So, so somebody's scraped together the tens of thousands of dollars required, if not hundreds of thousands, to put that. That's like a uh, like that's like the astrology <laughs> question. Oh, the Which story I happens.
2: heard about the astrology question you know? is they originally added it as a robustness check for the birth month question. Uh-huh. That they that they didn't ask it like try, you know trying to test whether you know um, you know Aries have lower trust than Leos and um, you know in the Supreme Court That's or what something I like seen. that I, yeah. I think they originally added it just to make sure that if you say that you're I mean I don't even know which months or which astrological signs but if you say March that you're you also give your astrological sign is given March and also keep in mind the GSS started in like 1973. So or 1972. So, you know, you could just right. imagine a bunch of like sociologists with like gold chains in you... their chest hair writing these questions.
0: <laughs> why have a robustness check on birth month, though? It seems to be a pretty low, low value variable. Well,
2: it could, that could be a robustness check in general. Right. Sometimes you just want to check the robustness of the survey overall, even if you don't
0: really care about the question. That's weird. I can't get my head around it. Maybe yeah. I just won't even bother.
2: So on a scale of one to five, where one is strongly disagree and five is strongly agree, do you think birth month is an important variable to have?
1: To have <laughs> yeah. Well, for, but it depends <laughs> for what, right? Yeah. So yeah. I think birth month would actually be a really good thing to, to have in a survey if you were looking at things like, if you were looking at kids, for example, and you're trying to see whether or not there's an mm-hmm, association mm-hmm. between birth month, and level of confidence in the classroom, right? Because, you know, the older the kid, right, you know, the more confident they'll supposedly be, right? And you're still within the parameters of this is your, this is the year you're supposed to be in this class, you haven't been held back, or redshirted or anything like that. And you're like, I'm bigger than everybody else, right? Of course, I'm confident, right? Yeah, you
2: you can build an analysis around anything. And, uh, And I always say, you know, there there, are any any research topic can be done rigorously, although the caveat to that is many of them systematically are usually not. You know, yeah, but, uh, for you could sure tell me that you're going to write a dissertation on the sociology of jello molds. And <laughs> I may say I am I might, if I had to bet, I might say it's going to be stupid, but it's theoretically possible that it could be very rigorously done. And, you know, I'm not going to judge it just on the, the topic sounding silly.
1: Hey, I'm. Uh, hey, I, I'm trying to. I'm trying to spin here. Okay.
0: Yeah. You know, no, You don't know. I was convinced, <laughs> Leslie. You'd won me over. I was convinced, and I uh, just want to say that is a beauty of the discipline, and also, you know, something that I've really come to appreciate even more once we started doing the podcast. You know, we're a quant shop, and I've never talked to such a wide range of really good yeah. ethnographers. Uh, and I've really gotten I, my appreciation for the, uh, you know, the other methodological side of the discipline has really, uh, really gone up. I'm, uh, that's a side point that we'll probably <laughs> no,
1: no, I think but, that's uh, cool. I think that's cool. I mean, isn't that part of what we're trying to do here is we're trying to bring sociology together with all of the divisions uh, in our society today? Isn't it nice to have a place? Where we can agree to disagree, right? We can share differing opinions, right? And, you know, we can walk away feeling like, huh, I learned something today.
2: I had no idea that there were such conciliatory aims for this podcast. I'm quitting after this episode. (laughs)
0: I, I was mostly trying yeah. to make friends. <laughs> oh, now I <laughs> feel bad.
2: Oh, you're the, you're the sad clown.
0: <laughs> As a tear rolls yeah. down my cheek yeah, with but, this laugh. But doctor, I am
2: Pagliacci.
1: Pagliacci. No, I was just thinking about Pagliacci, yeah.
0: Oh, shoot. Dudes, this has been like 40 yeah. minutes.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah, but there's got to be at least five minutes of crap for you to edit
0: out. Well, if anybody's even listened this far, I'd be very surprised. If anybody hears this and has listened this far... Congratulations. Let us you know were thinking about offering them like happen. a
2: free copy of a book or something. And then I and then I, I, I could hear the the wheels turning in your head, and you're like, oh, I might actually be on the hook
0: for no. <laughs> uh, nobody. Want nobody yeah. wants my book. By the way, I participated in a, uh, I participated in a study by Howard Gardner. You know the multiple yeah. intelligences yeah. Uh, yeah. guy. I think I think he's the multiple intelligences yeah. guy. So uh anyhow there was this study about, you know, university teaching all across the country and you know, we're always pulled into the fold because we we always stand as a certain kind uh-huh. of the industry, right? And uh but the ince- the, the incentive was a, an autographed <laughs> book by <laughs> Howard Gardner. <laughs> and This is a case where the incentive made me want to participate in the study less. Oh, totally. This sounds like, a signed book? Like, come on now.
1: (laughs) They should have just said points towards heaven. I mean, that would have been better.
0: Something. I was like, well, maybe I could put it on eBay or something. (laughs) But yeah, for anybody listening, a signed copy of your own book is not a great incentive. If you're trying to get other academics to uh, participate, in oh shit! Study. Now I have
2: to do who I I thought my Christmas shopping was all taken
0: care of.
2: <laughs> 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 oh, signed Gabriel Rossman book. I know, why? <laughs> and I can't even return them because I already signed. Yeah. Them. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's like one step up uh, above giving somebody a signed headshot for Christmas, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh
1: God. Okay, so what's up now ne- who's up next? Who's up next?
0: I'm Gabriel. We're almost done the episode.
2: Well, are we gonna leave uh space for the uh, Miranda Lambert guitar riff or are we just gonna go straight to it?
0: Oh, uh I don't know. This one's this one's pretty uh yeah. okay. I
2: think we're just
0: I think we're this is gonna be one of those let it all hang out type of episodes. Yeah, no editing, just live to tape. Yeah. <laughs> No, okay. no, I would I would never do that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and well,
2: yeah. you, you don't want to follow the Galit rule of uh, Are you sure you want to sound dumb on your podcast? <laughs> I think that one's been established already, <laughs> yeah. so I'm just giving up. <laughs> All right, so uh, I want to talk about something that uh, I talked about already on my blog, and I'm going to shamelessly recycle that. So anybody who reads it can just you know skip on to listening to In Our Time. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, start off by uh, reading from uh, the Odyssey. I was driven thence by foul winds for a space of nine days upon the sea. But on the 10th day, we reached the land of the lotus eaters who live on a food that comes from a kind of flower. Here we landed to take in fresh water and our crews got their midday meal on the shore near the ships. When they had eaten and drunk, I sent two of my company to see what manner of men the people of the place might be. And they had a third man under them. They started once and went out amongst the lotus eaters, who did them no harm, but gave them their eat of the lotus, which was so delicious that those of, who ate of it left off caring about home, and did not even want to go back and say what had happened to them, but were for staying and munching lotus with the lotus eaters, without thinking further of their return. Nevertheless, though they wept bitterly, I forced them back to the ships, and made them fast under the benches. Then I told the rest to go on board at once, lest any of them should taste of the lotus, and leave off wanting to get home. So they took their place, and smote the gray sea with their oars. Hmm. All right. So uh, that that little passage from uh, The Odyssey, uh, you know, I I thought of that when I read um, uh, Dreamland about Uh a year ago. And uh, it's an absolutely fantastic book. um, And I highly recommend it to any sociologist, um, whether or not you do criminal justice or drugs or anything like that, I don't do any of that stuff. And I thought it was absolutely you mean when you say do drugs, um, do
1: you mean like research it? Well, <laughs> yeah,
2: well, yeah, that's right. I mean, if you uh if, if you're actually doing drugs, yeah, you have just to clear. to read next, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I meant even if you're not a specialist <laughs> in drugs, um, can you?
0: Can you just give us a quick intro to the book just so – Yeah, sure. So it's by a
2: journalist, uh, Sam Quinones, um, on the opiate epidemic. And it kind of tells two stories. So one of the stories is the medical story of the pain revolution where in the early 1990s – well, picking up – starting in the 80s but really picking up in the 1990s, uh, medicine abandoned its traditional taboos on prescribing opiates. Um, traditionally doctors had always been afraid to prescribe opiates cause they knew they were addictive, or at least they had been since the earlier opiate epidemic of like, you know, patent medicine, uh, around the, in the Victorian era, or maybe a little later around the turn of the century. Uh, you know, when you had like patent medicine, that was really just laudanum, Um, and that sort of thing. And you ended up having all these people getting addicted to patent medicine. Uh, So between that and the early 90s, you had doctors being very reluctant to prescribe opiates. And uh, basically, if you were in pain, well, then you were just in pain. And pretty much, if it was, say, 1970, pretty much the only way you were getting opiates from a physician is if you were in surgery or recovering from surgery. But basically, nobody got opiates outpatient, and they were very tightly controlled inpatient. And then you had the pain revolution where they became convinced that pain was a serious problem and it could be treated by medicine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you also saw the development of a new class of opiates that were theoretically less addictive because the way addiction works in the brain is addiction is fundamentally a learning disorder where, uh, the brain learns when it has an unexpectedly pleasurable or for that matter, unexpectedly harsh stimulus, uh, right. It's it, it really uh, the psychologists call this the error prediction model of learning that you know if you if you don't expect something to be so wonderful then you you your brain really learns to do it again uh, oh, so the worst thing that can ever happen to you is that the fr- you win the first time you gamble you know right uh, if if you lose the first time you gamble you're not gonna you're not gonna like gambling and if you win the first time you gamble you're gonna you know like it which is not a good uh, habit to develop mm. anyway um, and so. If you have a opiate that releases into the bloodstream slowly, that should make it less addictive. Not mm-hmm. in the sense that your body will stop, your body will still stop producing endorphins naturally, but it's not going to have the learning process. Um, so it it'll, it might still be physiologically addictive, but it's not going to be mentally addictive in the same way. This also, by the way, is why cocaine is so addictive because uh, cocaine directly stimulates dopamine. Um uh, hmm. And and your body absorbs it very rapidly. Um, Anyway, but if you had drugs like OxyContin, where you take the pill and it it has basically a time-release coating, so it very slowly releases into your blood, um, in theory, that should be less addictive than just taking the equivalent dose of just straight morphine or oxycodone. Um, But it turned out that that was not true, and people got addicted to Oxy anyway. So that's one of the two stories. Um, the story of kind of the pharmaceutical slash medical revolution in opiates, and then the other story is um, about black tar heroin, especially coming out of the city of well not city the village of Jalisco, um, which is spelled with an X, unlike the state um, in the state of Nayarit. Uh, this is such a tiny, inconsequential place that I've driven through Nayarit, and I totally forgot it. Where, what
0: country is that? Where is that?
2: It's in Mexico. I believe it's between okay. Sinaloa and Jalisco. Um, right. But it's on the Pacific coast of Mexico, like two or three states down from the U.S. border. Okay. Um, or maybe three or four states down from the U.S. border. So it's this tiny little village, and um, people there near the village grow poppies. And then in the village, they cook them down to black tar. And they, they have like a return migration model where all the young men from this village uh, illegally migrate to the United States, um, basically sleep on the floor in an overcrowded apartment for six months and work 12-hour days driving around with cell phones and a half a dozen balloons of black tar in their mouth that you call the cell phone number and you meet at a prearranged drop-off point or they're even home deliver it and they sell you a balloon of black tar for 5 or $10. So it's an incredibly, it's, it's very high quality heroin. And um, I mean, it's not China white good, but it's, it's less diluted than um, heroin was traditionally. And it's very cheap, especially with the quality adjusted price. And more important than that, the customer service is excellent. You don't have to go to some corner boy, you know, Mm -hmm. who's going to be kind of mean to you and go to the sketchy part. They will actually deliver it even to your house. And uh, junkies who Quinone's uh, interviewed talked about how it was so much nicer buying from these uh, polite Mexicans than it had been from buying from traditional drug dealers. And, uh, you know, there's some advantages even from a public perspective. These guys, as a rule, are not violent. Uh, Uh They don't get into turf wars in part because they don't have corners to protect Um, but, uh, you know, it has the general pattern that you have, if you take these two storylines together is people get hooked on pills and then they eventually can't afford the pills and they switch to black tar. And the story that he doesn't tell is that since he wrote the book, um, there's been an influx of fentanyl and, um, people, which is a form of synthetic heroin and people have been taking the fentanyl and overdosing. Mm-hmm. And so we have this massive number of overdoses. Um, I believe the figure I heard so there's two statistics. One is that we now have more people dying of opiate overdoses than dying in car accidents. Mm-hmm. And the other in is certain that,
0: demographics or overall?
2: Uh, no overall, but it's especially prevalent among middle aged, non college educated white people.
0: Huh. Well, that's that Angus related to that Angus Deaton finding.
2: Yes, yeah, so you can basically read this as an ethnography of case and Deaton. Okay, you know, okay. Um, it, it's it's like a qualitative version of uh, case Deaton. So um, what did you
0: what did you get from the, what was the big what were the big insights from uh, from the book that sort of really stuck with you?
2: Well, so one is um, what motivates these uh, these drug dealers to come up from their village and spend, you know, six months and, you know, working extremely hard, uh, you know, at a fairly high risk of arrest and, um, you know, it's saving all their money is that they get to come home and be a big shot. Mm-hmm. And so what these guys will traditionally do, or at least they did at the time, it's probably slightly different now is they would accumulate 501 Levi's because, mm-hmm. um, these guys started in the nineties when 501s were fashionable Maybe right, today right. they'd collect skinny jeans <laughs> or something, but right. um, they would collect five hundred ones. Mostly, the junkies shoplifted from Millers Outpost or Sears or something, right. and then um, and they would like have suitcases full of five hundred ones and you know thousands of dollars, and they would come home at the end of their you know tour of duty, living in some tiny apartment. Uh, mm. Very often at the village corn festival, the Ferro de Alote, Lo- which just means mm. corn festival. Um, and they would uh, distribute jeans to everybody. You know, everybody they knew would get a pair of blue jeans. And, uh, and then they would also like you know, hire a band to perform at the festival and basically throw a big party. And, uh, and then they would you know, hang out at a strip club for a couple of weeks uh, doing cocaine until all their money was gone, and then they'd have to go back up. And I was thinking, and, and he points out that um, in doing this, you would make yourself the object of other men's envy, and mm-hmm. that in um, and, and that you would almost be ashamed to not be able to throw a party and not be able to give everyone else blue, blue jeans because that became the standard. And I was saying, oh, my God, this is a potlatch. Yeah. Right.
1: Exactly. You have this
2: periodic exactly. feasting and distribution of gifts. Um, and so it's, you know, it's at the other end of the income scale and, you know, social privilege and all that. Then Ashley's talking about. But it's the same damn thing. And for that matter, the same as like Mouse is talking about. Um so the you know, these bottle service with uh you know uh, Wall Street douchebags and um
0: Jean you know, these, parties uh, in the corn festival. Yeah, yeah,
2: and handing out bloom <laughs> jeans at the corn festival for these um you know, these Mexican uh, peasants turned drug mm-hmm. dealers, it's exactly the same issue.
0: You know what it makes me think about is just how easy it is to rile up young men young men in that way like uh it's just like you can get them to deal drugs you can get them to work around the clock you know making rich people richer but giving a a young person the opportunity to strut it's just amazing Mm to me i I mean i don't even know that's probably ridiculous thought at all yeah. No, me.
1: it's not. It's not ridiculous. You know, the one thing that's ridiculous about it, Joe, is you make yourself sound like you're some kind of like grandpa. <laughs> Come on, guy. I, I, you're not that old, I, Joe. I was
0: never that young. I was yeah. born for senior citizenship. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, in any uh, case it, yeah. it's interesting yeah. for me that that whole epidemic just it, it blows my mind uh i know doctors who were practicing at that time so i think i saw a frontline documentary on it that was also wonderful and uh, pbs frontline uh it's a show i love and uh they were almost shamed at the time into giving uh giving their patients opioids, like to not give your patients opioids was a marker of being inhumane and Mm -hmm. not caring about people's suffering. That's right. And And it was, but it was an influence campaign that was largely manufactured by those who wanted to sell the drugs, like it was. Well, all it was not, a it was a drugs. bootlegger Baptist
2: coalition. So economists have this model where you have sincere, ideologically committed activists pushing an issue, and mm-hmm. then there's also, you know, somebody who has a pecuniary interest in it. And very often, the way these things work is that the person who has a financial stake, rather than just saying, "Oh, prescribe these drugs because I'm the one who's selling them." Mm-hmm. They will kind of ally with and even fund the ideological people to, you know, kind of work in concert with them. So you yes. have both the ideal you have the idealists and you have the cynics cooperating together um, to produce this. And that you know there were doctors who were very sincerely committed to the idea that pain is a serious problem, and that you know we have these drugs that are very effective at treating pain. All of which is true. Right. Mm -hmm. But they just lost sight of the fact that these drugs are also extraordinarily dangerous. And and they were sincere in that. And and it's interesting, too, in that a lot of these doctors who were in this movement came out of hospice care. And in hospice, why not give people, you know, why not people drug people out of their mind? They're going to die before they'd have to kick the addiction anyway. Um, But the problem with that is that you, you can't generalize that to some 30 year old construction worker comes in with a bad back. Right. And say, here's a 90 supply, 90 day supply of oxy.
1: So one of the things that people have been talking about um, recently about the whole epidemic is that, you know, yeah, while it may be true that uh, that disproportionately speaking, you know, the you know, the the person that that is affected by this crisis, you know, is white. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. It's male, but increasingly female, I would say, but white male Mm -hmm. um, work like, you know, high school education. And we also think of them as living in the Midwest. Right. Or in these non-urban areas. So what's interesting
2: is the the medical story basically starts in the rural parts of the Rust Belt parts of the East Coast and works its way west. And the uh-huh. black tar story starts on the West coast. In fact, it starts in my old neighborhood. I grew up in Canoga park, California, and that's where the Jalisco yeah. boys made their beachhead. Although I don't remember, you know, people doing heroin. Um, but uh, the, and then when they met and say, Ohio, that's where things got really terrible. But you know, this, the pill popping started in, um, you know, kind of the rural Rust Belt parts of the East and then moved its way. Away. Basically the, the TV show justified as a documentary, you know, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, Sociologically accurate. Well,
1: so my so what I so what I was going to say is, you know, part of the conversation right now is Mm -hmm. people saying that may be the case, but they're not the only ones affected by the opioid crisis. And Mm -hmm. and it seems as though, um, you know, people actually have this idea, there's this ideal type, right? I would say of the person who is affected by the crisis and when you have that ideal type in your head it causes you to neglect all of the other people Mm. who don't fit that description um who are also suffering from the crisis so i remember
0: leslie they're not nobody's doing anything here about that crisis like nobody's it's all like like i i I, at the
1: local level I at mean, the local level, they are.
0: Uh, the only thing that I like, I, I know they, my community is really going on about how they're mad that the government's spending too much on this stuff to save their lives if they overdose. But my, yeah. like my understanding is that uh, the w- people with health insurance are the only ones who have a a good crack at any type of treatment. And I know there are like nonprofits or whatever, but like it's bonkers. In my, from what I'm gathering, and I've spoken with a few doctors in Canada, they just, they are, it's like they're just, they're treating opioid addicts as sort of chronic drug, you know, drug addict cases and they're trying to taper them down, but it has to happen slowly with behavioral modification. In the mm-hmm. States, what they do is they just cut off the pill thing. They gave everybody pills, and they were like, "Whoa, this is bad." Now nobody gets pills, or I mean, uh, you don't get as many pills. And then everybody went to tar after that. But I mean, I get that there's a, a race or, or fentanyl, and fentanyl is yeah. what's really dangerous. Yeah, that, like it's that- not just
1: that it's a race element; it's also this urban-rural split. I would say this this like middle versus coast split, uh-huh. and You know, so there's all so there's all this stuff that I think conveniently uh, conveniently lends itself to certain political narratives, um, number one, but also number two. And I think I mentioned this on an earlier episode. Mm -hmm. Right. I kind of feel like every 10 to 15 years, you know, uh, an epidemiologist or an MD will come out with a study that says, oh, my God we totally undertreat the pain of people of color, right? Uh,
0: Um,
1: We assume that, you know, we assume that they don't need it, that they can tolerate pain, like, better, their skin is thicker. Like, there are all of these theories about why um, these, like, like my, like black and brown people are supposedly better able to tolerate pain. And I, and so there was one of these studies that came out, I want to say two years ago. And I remember like listening to listening to this on the radio. And one of the people on the show said, well, one of the upsides of this, you know, for black people is that, well, you know, Uh, because they were less likely to be prescribed opiates. Like, you know, they're not victims of the opiate crisis. And I, you know, and I get it. Like, Like, they're not as, but I mean, they're parts of the Bronx that are like, decimated first of all I
0: I find that to be such a ridiculous argument because the only reason that these people aren't being affected by opiate addiction is because they were denied healthcare services like (laughs) in the past generation and you're like yeah see you guys we didn't give you health care but like there's an upside to it yeah
1: it's glass glass half full or glass half empty how you want to look
0: at this that's like that's like imagine like an abusive spouse beats their spouse and then the spouse runs away and becomes a super famous singer and they're like yeah like i'm thinking of uh, tina turner and ike turner I was you're just like gonna oh, say
2: that sounds like yeah, a lot of uh, that's movie, what i've uh, got to do with it
0: yeah, and that's like yeah. saying, see, Tina, wasn't it great that Ike was beating you? Because ultimately he ended up a star. It's like, don't put well, that into it's, a favor. You,
2: you keep saying uh, medical, but one of the interesting things is that the uh, the Jalisco boys refuse to sell to black customers too. Um, mm-hmm.
1: oh. And
2: uh, Quinones, you know, who talked to all of them, said that basically they, they're convinced that um, the black heroin market is more violent than the white heroin market. And mm-hmm. they feel that they suspect that if they sell to um, black customers, they're more vulnerable to armed robbery. So, you know, both from the medical side and from the uh, street market side, um, both types of, um, you know, new models of opiate distribution have been, uh, you know, for not necessarily the greatest motives, have left. Uh, blacks less uh, involved less vulnerable so
1: discrimination open. can be protective
2: well if it if it's if it's discrimination in the provision of poison
1: yes
0: <laughs> yeah you know?
1: no I, I i know I totally
0: got it yeah. can I uh can I it, it it sounds like it's a completely different topic but there yeah. there's a link and the link is fear of black neighborhoods because uh-huh. um, it's like it's really odd that like Mexican heroin dealers would be like well, I don't want to go to the black neighborhood I heard it's dangerous <laughs> there which to me is like insane but also uh, 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 one thing that I'm beginning to think about you know the how uh, how housing costs are really a stress in the Northeast and out in the West coast, probably even more so. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, I was looking at sort of property in the suburbs of New York city. And one thing that I really noticed was like, even wealthy black neighborhoods, like if, even if they're wealthy there, I, I get the sense that there's like a, a price discount and it means
1: oh that, there like, totally is.
0: Yeah. And it means that like you have like I'm wondering how much of this housing is how – much, how much housing, and it's not all of this housing cost problem, is rooted in like people's irrational fears of black neighborhoods. I'm not saying poor neighborhoods. I'm not saying crime-ridden mm-hmm. neighborhoods. I'm saying black independent of those factors. Like I live in a town where the uh, black neighborhood is physically segregated. Like there's a train track and whatever, and I noticed there's limited access points. I'm not an expert in this stuff, so maybe I'm out to lunch, but that's what I see. No, no, my understanding
2: and, is that perceptions of neighborhoods are more driven by race than they are by you know, signs of physical disorder or objective crime rights or anything like that. Oh, yeah,
1: no, for sure, right? So I, I, think, I think we may have talked about this before. We ha- yeah. may have had this discussion before, but there's that Emerson et al. study that was done. I wish I could remember what year, but it was... You know, like, I think, I think it's going on two decades now, right? Mm -hmm. Where they did, you know, kind of like that phone survey kind of field experiment where, you know, they basically asked people, you know, they, they talked to people over the phone and they said, imagine that you're looking for a house. You have two kids who are school aged, right? Um, And here you are. And they're like, the house is within your price point. Yeah you know it's a beautiful house the mm-hmm. property values are high the quality of the neighborhood school is very high right everything's good right mm-hmm. and the and and crime is low right mm-hmm. and so the one thing they did was they changed the racial makeup the racial and slash ethnic makeup of the classroom. I mean, uh-huh. the classroom. Jeez. No, but, the but, see the same,
2: but it's a good slip, right? Because you see the same effect yeah. in people's evaluation of sure. school quality.
1: No, exactly. And what they found was that they were like, dude, in that case, it didn't matter how Asian a neighborhood was, because oh, because all of the respondents were white. Mm-hmm. Didn't matter mm-hmm. how Asian the neighborhood was. Didn't matter how Latino the neighborhood was, but. Right. I think it was once a neighborhood got beyond, I think it, it may I can't remember, it may have been beyond ten percent.
0: Yeah, I was gonna um, guess something low.
1: Yeah, then people were like, whoa. And I and, and I think that basically what what this finding tells you is that regardless of whether or not I mean, they were basically trying to figure out look, you know, people have these ideas, right? And so is it because like you know, race acts as a proxy for all of these other things. Well, we're going to tell people, you know what? It's not a proxy. Like, we're going to give you all the information so you don't have to use race as a proxy. And even with that, it's kind of like, if it's a Black neighborhood, we mm-hmm. don't care what's on paper. We and, and, and the effect was was strongest um, for people who actually had school-age kids, yeah. right? If you didn't have school-age kids, oh, you'd be like, okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, you people. People go out. Well, what's weird in my town is that the black neighborhood is pretty well healed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the houses are all super nice, and I think those like you know it's it's very weird. But still, it doesn't matter at what level. Right, in North Jersey, Joe, the
1: people are black.
0: <laughs> you know what? I don't know something though, Leslie. I'll tell you something though. I remember when I started teaching at Temple University, um, and I told I lived in Harlem, and then I moved to temple and harlem was already i mean i lived in harlem in 2003 2004 so it was already kind of getting hip and stuff you know it was it was pretty fun living there uh it was a great neighborhood where i lived and when i talked about coming from harlem to the black kids at temple they were like what did you die there and i was like oh that's weird (laughs)
1: like
0: harlem has a bad reputation like even among uh black people in philadelphia so it goes to show like even like that, that perception might even be pressed on to black people themselves.
1: Oh, no, it's- for sure. It's kind of like when people like, so for example, when a black police officer shoots an unarmed black male or female and people mm-hmm. are like, oh, well, you know, it's, that's a thing that happens. So, so it's, it's a racism isn't a thing among police officers. And, you know, if you're trained in the same in this to see black people the same way, regardless of your own race or ethnicity, mm-hmm. it amounts to the same thing.
0: Uh, no, I don't I, know. I like that's why I like Queens. I feel Queens is pretty where there's no. I feel like there. I mean, this is a white person talking. So whenever I'm like, well, I'm very comfortable with race. You're always like, uh, well, what do I? Mean? <laughs> Uh, but I, I find one thing that I love about Queens is like, there's no dominant group that you can see. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it, it makes race even in my own subjective experience feel like more of a non-factor, you know, when it, when it's all, when it's uh, a bunch of different stuff, then it's just, you know, it doesn't seem like a huge factor. Whereas I felt race was a much bigger thing in Philly where there was a higher proportion of blacks, but there wasn't the, the diversity where everybody gets soaks in so I don't it's know.
2: too bad Donnell's not here because I remember back when we were in grad school he he told me that um, the kind of multiracial nature as compared to biracial nature of you know current American race changes the nature of segregation and that white people in particular feel differently about neighborhoods if they're uh, you know they, they basically they, they think differently they don't necessarily think about what percentage is the neighborhood white they think more in terms of is it what percentage is it black, but that means that you can have uh, more of a stable equilibrium at integration with the multiracial conception than you could back when it was just the two races.
1: Although one of the things I, I, I'm, I'm happy you mentioned Queens, Joe, because uh, I mean, there are neighborhoods in Queens that are totally diverse and then you realize there are no black people there, right? Right. So I, I mean, it's crazy. and you're just like, how is it possible that th- there is a space for seemingly every type of person in this neighborhood except there are no people like this, right? And I mean, I, and I think, um and and the, and you can see that in quote unquote, diverse neighborhoods all around the country, right? Um, and I think i I think it goes to. Um, I don't know. Like, I think this country, like, like, kind of anti-blackness, whether it's conscious or subconscious, what have you. I think it still runs deep in this country.
0: Oh, it's plain as day. I'm,
2: I'm glad you mentioned Queens because it reminds me to watch Coming to America again.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and on that note,
0: <laughs> I, I just want to say, uh, what's his name? The dad. Yeah, he, he was he in Jamaica? Oh, McDowell's? States? Yeah. Yeah, McDowell's. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, it's funny, like, now I know the neighborhood. Yeah. They don't look like that. Yeah. But uh, Queens is cool. Oh, there was something that I wanted to argue with you about. Mm-hmm. It was about the doctors. Um, and it's like, oh, it was about how uh, even though they never lost sight of the fact that opiates were addictive, mm-hmm. what happened was addictivity got reframed. Right. It was like that. It's like there's a a cost benefit and that the where you stand is influenced by a lot of social pressures. And it was like, oh, see, I disagree
2: with that because it became conventional wisdom at a certain point that the addiction rate for opiates is one percent. It's actually more like 20 percent. But they but there was a study that showed one percent. And then people forgot that that study occurred under very specific circumstances. And so Mm -hmm. basically for inpatients. In the 70s, the addiction rate was 1%, but um, among people, so in the 70s, you only got opiates inpatient, and you only got them for a few days when you were recovering from surgery, and only 1% of people got addicted under those circumstances. That's not going to generalize if you have people who are outpatient and getting 60-day packs of oxy
0: okay so that is yes and, I understand under that sort of,
2: almost it's something like 15 or 20 percent of people get addicted
0: okay but that line of reasoning is a very social scientist's way of thinking about things well, it's
2: generalizability so,
0: I, I understand but like so for example like I'm thinking more personal discussions I've had now it's a different context sure. it's obviously an idiosyncratic sample. Mm-hmm but i will say that the doctors that i have spoken to their grasp of science and statistics is much weaker than ours yeah and a lot of them anecdotally reason through their work and like they have heuristics and stuff but their their analytical minds like you don't have to be analytical to be a doctor mm-hmm. It takes a a bunch of skill sets. Interestingly, some of them are like steady hand, Mm -hmm. like in the lab. So it's scientific like that. Some of it is like observational or human management. There's a whole repertoire of skills. And the doctors that I talk to reason through it like this. They're like, well, we knew that they were addictive, but we felt like that we were incurring a cost, like that the downside of potential addiction that we had been misestimating the real harm of pain, like pain had been constructed into reconstructed into being a disease in and of itself. And when I talk to doctors, some of them speak about it as a past belief state that they held. Oh, I
2: I think that's absolutely true. And Kinones talks a lot about that. So he talks about like um, pain became an indicator that was added to medical charts. So like right alongside your blood pressure and that kind of shit, it it would have, uh, you know, your pain rating. And pain became something that like uh, doctors would be evaluated on, and that hospitals would check as like a post uh, and like you know was the doctor nice to you? Did the doctor ask your questions? Did was the doctor concerned with your pain? So pain became taken very seriously in the 1990s um,
0: as an pain indicator. became my under, My understanding is pain was construed as a form of illness itself not a symptom of an underlying illness like people were starting to say you got to treat it no no pain that's itself. pretty much
2: true and and ketnote yeah. talks about that a lot but he says but the so the i don't know there's two sides to this one is taking pain more seriously and the other is taking addiction less seriously and it's like even if you mm-hmm. thought pain was a serious problem and a disease in of itself and things like that if you if i told you that 15% of your patients who you treat for pain will end up with a life altering addiction that turns them into the kind of people who steal their children's Christmas presents to sell for dope. Mm -hmm. Then you would say it's better off that they still stay in pain. But if I tell you what percent, then you'd say I'm going to give them the pills.
1: Yeah. And Joe, I think, um, I, so I think that, that part of what's going on here with that 1% number is that the people who were trying to, who were trying to push the pills and convince doctors that, you know what? Like, this is a no-brainer that they're Mm. quoting the 1% number, right? And then there are doctors who are like, I I thought I knew better than this, right?
0: Well, they're like, well, this is scientific. I guess it's 1%. Yeah, Yeah." just
1: from observation, I thought I'm pretty sure it's higher than this. But if you're telling me it's 1% and I'm getting, you know, from on high that this is what I need to be doing. And then at the same time, you have new cohorts of of medical students being trained in medical school like around that one percent number yeah right what do you think they're gonna do when they leave medical school and,
2: and the interesting thing is that one percent became just like an accepted fact and people knew the citation but nobody bothered to look it up and read it the mm-hmm. actual citation is a one paragraph letter to the editor i think of jammer uh uh which journal was it?
1: New England England
2: Journal of Medicine. So so it was a one paragraph letter to the editor in New England Journal of Medicine saying, we checked the inpatient records and only 1% of people who were treated inpatient with opiates later became addicted among people who didn't have a prior addiction. That was it. And if you read the actual article, you'll say, oh, well this should in general. And you think like a social scientist where, you know, you think about problems like generalizability, you'd say, well, of course this isn't Mm going to generalize to you know, I give people a 60-day supply of OxyContin and send them on his way. Um, but, you know, people just took the number for granted. And that that statistic appeared in medical textbooks. It appeared in pharmaceutical detailing literature, where, you know, if you're a pharmaceutical detailer and you're trying to convince doctors to prescribe Oxy, you just have in your PowerPoint that yes. 1%. And you don't say 1% of people treated inpatient in the 1970s. You just say 1%. <laughs> And that became like the mantra was 1%. And 1% is acceptable if pain is a serious problem. But 15% yeah. or 20%, which is the real number, is not.
0: A lot a lot of those docs writing those scripts, they were trained before evidence-based medicine was even a thing. Like evidence-based medicine, I think, is like an 80s or 90s thing, if I'm not mistaken. Like a lot of docs who are writing those scripts, like they just took the... The reps' were at it, but they were going on evidence. It's just
2: the evidence was bad because it was ba- it was basically an out of sample generalization.
0: And now a word from editor Bain.
2: You review like a younger man with no demands for alternative specifications or tangentially relevant citations held back.
0: You've been listening to The Annex, The Sociology Podcast. A special thanks to you for actually making it through this episode. (laughs) We're on the web. Theannexpodcast.com On Twitter, at Soch And on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. On behalf of Leslie Higson and Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. Bye.